Doing More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. What if you're just not seen in the world and your parents pay no attention to you at all? How do you deal with that as an adult? Susan talks passionately about her life of disconnection and feeling shut down as a child. She had no idea about life and how to be in it. She learned how to be in the world by mirroring what went on around her. Having faced extremely challenging periods in her life, including dealing with emotional trauma that resulted in depression as an adult, through the help of others, she worked out how to connect. In her own words, without therapeutic help, I don't think I would be here now. Throughout her life, dancing was a key element and enabled Susan to truly come alive. She wanted to teach others, particularly women, babies and small children, through dance and movement therapy, how to overcome their issues. This episode also provides a fascinating insight into life in Australia in the 50s and 70s. What it was like for Susan and how she navigated her way through relationships, having children and dealing with her emotional issues. I truly hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome here too on a rainy day. Why has helping other people been so important to you in your life? It hasn't been so much that thought of... It's more important to me now than, than, than that it was so prevalent in my mind when I was doing it. It was just... Well, it was more serendipitous that it just so happened that the things that I was passionate about, say, for you know, in dance, I wasn't interested in so much in performance or choreography. What I was interested in was expressive dance, like expression, which was really more about me. The working with other people grew out of that, sort of like realising how wonderful it was that, and realising that I had a talent or a skill was quite natural to me to be able to work in dance and movement with children and with adults. And it gradually got, you know, I trained, did different training, but it just got more refined. It was another way of obviously communicating and expressing, but it was was so natural to me. I remember people saying to me, how do you dance the way you do? I'd like to know, you know, like I'd like to be able to do that. So I, I don't remember, I mean, I'd trained as a drama teacher I trained as so, so the teaching part of it, which is how it started, was was just there. You know, I taught in high schools. I was a pretty terrible teacher. I taught English as well, and I was a pretty much of a mess myself. I was, you know, in early marriage with my our daughter Zoe. She was quite young, very confused, very mixed up about feminism. This is like in the early seventies. But I taught, and I loved teaching. I loved the contact. That's really what it was. I loved the contact with the kids. And I, I, I couldn't stand the pressures put on, the sort of administrative pressures that took, took you away from being with the kids and the content of what we were doing. And it was the sort of therapeutic aspects of drama that I, that I loved to work with. I could see the potential for it. And because I was so interested in therapy myself, I hadn't started any... I'm, I'm, this is, you know, in my 20s. I realised that I was teaching a lot through dance and through movement. It became really evident to me that that was my medium, that was my way. That, and uh, I don't know whether I'm answering your question because... I'm not a social worker. I haven't trained in, as a psychotherapist. So in terms of, 
I'm a t- you know I was a teacher, so I wouldn't have put it in in the, in the you know in the basket with help the helping professions, but but yeah you're right it is and and that was obviously my orientation too because I was more interested in the therapeutic aspects of of both drama and dance and the sort of sociological and the emotional I guess you know I'm a pretty intensely emotional sort of person so I think I recognized early that it was an area of difficulty for me and for a lot of other people being open emotionally so it seemed like a natural fit to put it together and as again it was something that was very natural to me so opportunities opened up where I could teach and it was the teaching qualification that meant that people trusted me to be able to say teach groups or work with groups or work with small children or it's interesting because it it it, it actually was quite in time was a small part of my life actual teaching in schools and it was a means to an end in the in the, the end because I I taught when I was as an emergency teacher when I was pregnant and stuff like that so it was very much a means to an end not really a career choice in the end and I couldn't get out of it fast enough because I I didn't enjoy being in schools with all the restrictions on how you could relate to kids and what was the connection with kids you've mentioned kids in what you just said there yeah. what was the what was the pull it's like I think it's always been there. I, I, as far back as I can remember, I used to go and offer to babysit our neighbours' kids. I've loved being with children. I have a, I have a really, maybe it's overdeveloped, but quite a developed sense of children's vulnerability. And I've had, a, like with my husband we have, and, and our group of friends, we had a really strong interest in alternative education and... Neil, who is a famous um, Scottish uh, free thinker and alternative education person, who is very famous, who had a connection with Wilhelm Reich, who is a contemporary of Freud's, kicked out of psychoanalysis, but he was the father of somatic therapy, body therapy, so which connects with dance for me. So it's all it all kind of it's serendipitous in the way that those things all connected. So education dance expression, body therapy, and all of that stuff sort of, for me, leads back to the beginnings of your life and the beginnings, your early experiences and relationship with parents and siblings and those those early formative times. And I had a, I developed, I think, quite a sensitivity to how children are treated because of, I think, how I was treated and my, my experience of being treated quite abusively in terms of neglect, emotional neglect, growing up in what felt to me like an emotional desert and a cultural desert. So I think I, I grew up with a sensitivity about it and sensitivity to other to little kids and other kids and, and, and an interest in education, a real interest in how, in development, how minds develop and, and just a real interest in what makes people tick. And it just seemed to focus on little people. So I think, I mean, and I've always loved being around babies. I think I just felt really, I think, because babies are so affectionate mostly, I could be with a child, because there wasn't much affection in my life, so I could be with a child and play and, there, I, I, and have a, you know, cuddle a child and play and be spontaneous and... It was very natural. It was just like a really like it's like having a conversation with a little person, and I think I grew up feeling very miffed that people didn't take children seriously. I think I got a sense of that I had things to say and I had thoughts, thoughts I was thinking and that I was grappling with things as a child. That you shouldn't assume that children are not fully alive and functioning and thinking and have their own ideas and feelings about things and I used to love talking to one of my neighbours because she used to take me seriously and I remember telling her that, you know, that she treated me like an adult <laughs> when I was 10 <laughs> and I still get on really well with her. She's, you know, she's in her 80s now anyway. Yeah, that. so I've had a kind of a Again, a sensitivity and a protectiveness. And I had a great protectiveness towards my, my younger brother. 
So, again, I don't know whether that answers your question. It's just a really big part of me. And I've developed it through further education and through the things that I focus on all, most of my career was, a, was that focus on mothers and babies and early development and the importance of the experiences of small people, the recognition of it. I often hear women talking about, it's been one of my problems with, well, problems is a bit much, but feminism talks about the rights of women and women going back to work. And, you know, we've I've often had these conversations and been with women struggling with those choices. And I'm not diminishing them at all, but I think what's often left out is the experience of the kids and the rights of the babies and the rights of the children to be, I think they should be equally considered. And I think a lot of people these days don't know much about child development and they underestimate children, especially babies, but really underestimate children and, and the, the fullness of life that's going on with them. Yeah, I don't do that. I don't want to do that. I think it's... It, it, so it's grown out of my own experience of that happening to me and then my understanding of what that's meant for me in my life and how important it is to do as much as possible to prevent it happening in other kids' lives. So I think that's the answer to your other question, is that it's, it's from my own experience and applying it to life and applying it to around me, and it coincided with the talents and the skills that I had, and, and naturally and then what I could learn, what I was really open to learning. There's been a lot of neurological research which I thought would change the world. I think it was in the mid-90s, started coming out about the development of the infant brain and it just blew my mind. I mean, it was stuff you already know, like children need to be loved, hello. Uh, but it was really much more specific about what happens in the mind, or in the brain. They had images of like the, 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 the brain of a very depressed person. I think these were women and the brain of an infant and they mirrored each other. It was like, oh my God. So that's, that's, it gives me shivers now. It's like, well, that's when all the funding started to pour in for postnatal depression because it's, it's like, well, this is really serious. Like these windows in time for the development, the emotional and social development of children, not so much the mental, intellectual, but emotional, social is sort of the fundamental it's the foundation of a person in terms of their ability then to learn and to function in the world. So, I mean, it's all kind of connected for me over the years. So that, that all, a lot of that knowledge helped me frame the way then that I was able... And it, it coincided with the, the place I worked. That it, They had the same awareness at the same time. So it coincided with going, for me, going into working with more intensively with mothers and babies and women who were either diagnosed or um, just saying they were having great difficulties being a mum for various reasons, but anxiety was often a big one, isolation, shock, <laughs> you know, ignorance, just sort of like, oh my God, this is nothing like dashed expectations, this is nothing like, you know, I thought it would be. Or actually, I didn't think much about what it would be like. And often, you know, over the years, we would say to people, "What did you, what did you know about babies?" And people would often say nothing. I, I looked at the stages of pregnancy, the birth, this and that, but I, I just thought it would be natural, and I'd know what to do. And I don't. I think well, it's a really big issue. It is. Why would you? No. Yeah. Well, exactly. Unless you seek it now, because I mean, in in days gone by, but you just were surrounded by babies. You know, when we lived more in a, you know, well, I suppose when my I was born in nineteen fifty, so and the neighbours were all around, kids were all around, and people talked. But you know, it wasn't a great time for babies then either. <laughs> yeah, I. I I scratch my head. So I guess that's been a really 
well, it still is really important to me. And I suppose what I see now in my life is my, my two daughters. I think I was able to break the cycle. They're very much more, at, at their ages, functional human beings than I was. or And they're much more natural, naturally able to be very, very juicy parents, you know, really connected to their kids emotionally really sort of available really wise parents really they're both really good parents and they've chosen men who are really good parents so I feel quite proud of that in terms of how it could have gone <laughs> it's it's kind of like when I'm talking now to you about this it's a, on every level of my life it's been a like I said before it's a big theme <laughs> and like if you I haven't had a big academic focus in my life but even academically I'd say that's been where I've focused as well and what I've learned and how I've learned and it's been easy for me to learn about that stuff because I'm so passionate about it you know and learning about pleasure the importance of pleasure because if I mean if you're the mother of a tiny child or the father like I'm not leaving fathers out but we've focused with mums in fact, there needs to be way more work done with fathers, fathers and mothers and kids, you know, and fathers in their own right. If you're depressed and anxious, you're not getting much pleasure out of life. So it's very hard to be the parent of a small child. And it's quite natural to feel anxious too. I'm not saying, you know, you're not going to have days where you feel really like shit and really down and exhausted and and anxious and all of those things. It's when it it's unrelenting and that's all you experience and it's also when you go silent and you don't share it and you try and cope and you try and pretend to other people you try and meet other people's expectations that you're coping and it goes underground and you know you spend a lot of your time crying and you find it hard to get out of bed and you maybe you feel really angry with the baby or all kinds of things maybe you start having fantasies about dropping the baby or maybe you know like maybe you're maybe it manifests in having difficulties with breastfeeding or maybe you find breastfeeding repulsive there's all this these really deep feelings going on which you just haven't been prepared for it's like oh la la I've got a pink baby or a blue baby <laughs> and oh my god I have I'm not sleeping and it's like and then people start looking up the forums and there's all sorts of advice goes around and there's a lot of really negative comments and negative attitudes to babies and which is not that helpful so yeah um I started talking about pleasure it's like one of the things that I ended up doing was working oh different women but wonderful colleagues who had psychology backgrounds or counselling backgrounds and I was working as a dance therapist and we put the two things together so I, I could do the movement play kind of work with the mums and babies and then we could all sit and discuss and have a a meaty kind of discussion if you know we weren't we didn't have like a therapy contract but the work was very therapeutic and very honest and I think that was one of the strengths one of my one of the focuses is just like to say, look, it's really important that you find a way of discovering pleasure together. And one of the ways of doing that is, you know, if, is to reconnect with your body. Because and in the moment, so so you get away from all the thinking and just be in your body and move. And you don't have to move in any particular way. It's just natural movement. It's not, you know, like I used to joke and laugh and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not teaching you how to line dance. <laughs> or any, it's, it's about natural movement. So movement play is a better way of putting it. And to find pleasure, because often little kids who are really, like I mean tiny kids, whose mums are struggling, find it very hard to maintain eye contact with their mums because what they see there is pain and it's very hard it, 
you know, I found it, you know, to be to be in a room with babies who, when we're doing face-to-face -face work, which we did quite a bit, with, is to see babies that look away and just be in a space where you're holding the situation where you can actually deal with how that feels. And it's very real, <laughs> you know, that's gut-wrenching. You know, it's heartbreaking when you, when you realise, very delicate, when you realise that how you are really profoundly impacts on your child and how, you, how the child is really impacts on you. And it's a two-way system. There's been many comments and much wisdom written about it. With a baby, you're with a mother and a baby. You're never with just a baby. <laughs> so I think that's that's. I mean, it's very profound, and clearly it's it's loomed large in my life because of my own experience with with having a sort of sort of unmothered and having worked through that therapeutically myself. And I was I've been able to come out the other side and apply it. Which I'm also very proud of. <laughs> Tell me about that experience for you. Well, it goes back to my mother. Yeah, look, it's it's to it's totally profound, and, and I, I think you know when I think about it in a spiritual way, or when I think about the you know I've thought sometimes in my life where I'm like what is this about? Like, it's dealing with emotional pain. Like it's uh, so vast, Dan. It's like distilling it's because I my experience of it was was growing up when I was very shut down very numb as I said you know I wasn't I felt and I think I, I can't speak for my brother but you know given the difficulties he's had in his life but I, I, we were like enough Invisible's a bit much, but like more like non-existent, except to be as long as we behaved and ate and <laughs> got up and went to school and you know, and that's probably an exaggeration. But in terms of how it felt to a little person and and how painful it was, and and how difficult it was to function in the world without without feeling like a a, a strong loving base at home I, it was very hard was where did you go to find that you mentioned your neighbour but was there oh well as a kid well nowhere really I went to church um, why church uh, well they were Presbyterian and I, I remember I think it was just automatic that you'd send your kids to Sunday school so I, but I, I went to Sunday school and it was like oh this is great you know people talk about stuff talk about crap but you know I was very interested in God and I was I so I, I think I can't remember how I don't know if I was in the choir or but I, I started actually going to church services and, and I liked it because it was actually talking about I talked about stuff I liked the sermons and I liked the hymns the music and and I'm, <laughs> I can remember sort of looking up looking forward to the sermons because it was ideas and I wasn't impressed by fire and brimstone, and but it was it was a way of having a father. I think it was like I, I decided I'd go to the top, <laughs> and, and you know it. I was already thinking about that kind of thing. I couldn't talk about it anywhere. So at least if you went to church and Sunday school, they talked about that. And so, how did you do then? You must have been depressed, then. You must have suffered from being alone. Do your parents have any idea what was going on at that time? Did you ever talk to them about it? You just just felt like they you said before, they, completely locked down, and that was it. They weren't interested. Like they were very, very involved with themselves. Mum was very vain. But, you know, Dad was out in the world. He was a real estate agent, quite a large sort of personality. But he was he was also very autocratic and. I was scared of him, so was my brother. And my brother's way of coping was that he started drinking and using drugs at a very young age and sort of got out of there. And he was a musician, rock and roll, you know, reggae, you name it. And we just lost him, you know. I didn't 
and said, I've said to him, I, I didn't think he'd live past 30. And I, we were very uh, disengaged from one another. Yeah. But mum and dad were very, they were the loves of each other's lives and they were very, they were very self-involved. Dad was very busy, worked six days a week, had an amazing garden, didn't really have time. He was, he was a very dutiful man and mum was very much in the 50s, very all about how she looked and how we looked and as long as everything looked okay, it was okay. She was a good cook, she down on her knees scrubbing floors and good housewife and that's all she expected of herself and it's what dad wanted and it's what they thought for me too that was their the end beginning and end of their expectations for me or their hopes for me was that oh you will if you grow up like your mother you'll be doing well that was what was said to me and you know your mother was a virgin when I married her there's no reason why you can't be it was like well there is a pretty good reason (laughs) (laughs) clearly that boat had sailed (laughs) The horses bolted. Horses bolted, no, that way of saying it, but yeah. She limited her life, and I think she could never envisage anything more for herself. She was quite quite scared, I think. But, you know, such a, so sad. Mum just wasn't available emotionally. Neither of them were. But, but the place was loaded with emotion. <laughs> of course, because they were quite intense people. So it was a very heavy sort of, that's my feeling of it. It wasn't a a light, happy place. It was really loaded. You know, always wanted to be very, very well-dressed, well-turned out, well... And she was famous for that. Extremely famous. In fact, at her funeral, that's what people said about her. I mean, she was pretty sick most of her life and people admired her for her stoicism. And I guess there's something to admire there. I mean, as I've gotten older and, and... as I've said, had a lot of help. Uh, it, it, I think one of the hallmarks of if therapy is helping you, if you if you start being able to see your parents as people rather than just your parents, so I'm pleased to say that I was able to do that. I am able to do that. So I had more appreciation of of sort of she of her. She she seemed a very shallow person to me, but I don't think she was. I think she was probably more open with her friends, maybe. But like at her funeral, people said things like, you know, oh, apparently your mum was so sick, but she never showed it. You never knew. She always looked so immaculate. And, you know, and for mum, that would be the best thing you could ever say about her. She was immaculate. Her um, hairdresser came to her funeral because she, she was probably closest to him. <laughs> She went, I knew she was dying when she stopped going to the hairdresser. I'm not kidding. Wow, that important. Two weeks before she died, I think it was. Maybe maybe it was a bit longer. She stopped going to the hairdresser. And I wasn't very close to her. When I realised that, I thought, wow, she's not going to be here much longer. She's That is serious. When she's more concerned about, or unable, just unable. Because she got herself there. She never drove. She got her, so dad got her there, no matter how ill she was, or she would get herself there. So appearance was everything. And appearance in a social sense, like what would the neighbours say? And, you know, she was mortified that I didn't want to be a bride. I didn't even want to get married. So when we got married, it was, it was because they were, she was going to have a nervous breakdown what would the neighbours think because we wanted to live together so we we got married and so what did you know about being in a relationship what was the most important thing to you given what you'd grown up with when you got married what was what do relationships mean to you yeah that's a really good question because I, I know that I was such a mess emotionally at that point in my life I think what, and you know, I was getting married straight from home, which was just ridiculous. 21. I think, I mean, we wanted to live together. So, 
I think it was escape. I think I assumed that I would have a long-lasting, like mum and dad did, a forever relationship. They did love each other. They were devoted to each other, to the exclusion of a lot of things, or certainly us. And I think that I sort of just, I met my ex-husband and we kind of fell together both very needy terrible choice terrible choice oh. if you look back on it now there was no part of you that went mm. uh, I was numb I can remember his name was Kerry he cried at the service we were very close I mean and I was just numb I remember looking at him thinking oh and it was all kind of a shock. Like a, I was packing up, moving out of my, the family home. And I, I was like a babe in the woods. I was totally naive and totally unprepared for life. I had no life skills, I would say. I was taught nothing. Like no one ever sat me down and said, listen, if it's, you know, you might find this or that about life and you can always come to me. No one. And, and I had no idea about finances, I had no idea about cooking, I had no idea about sex really, I had no idea about, I, know, I knew I wanted to have kids, I had no idea about work or how you function in the world, paying bills, nothing, absolutely no idea. And we moved into a share house and it was like, shopping? <laughs> right housework right no idea I was completely unprepared so I was a sitting duck so was he really and we fumbled around and I mean we were very very attracted to one another we were very passionate about one another but we were both completely damaged turns out I mean turns out he's he was we think he probably had bipolar. I mean, that's a whole other story. <laughs> How long have you got? That's a that's a like a, a that's like a sixty week drama on television. <laughs> it's you know, yeah. But oh, bad choice. I mean, he's the father of my children, so I can't be regretful because they're wonderful and they're part of him. He's part of them and. It's the best part. So then going back to what I oh, said pregnancy. before. Yeah, so then how would it have been the pregnancy? Well, so how I would it have been to get what you just told me? We, how, did you, how did you cope with that? How did I get pregnant? We were dedicated to... I, was, I, was, I went into teacher training and we were dedicated to education. He switched from science to primary education. So... Um, and, and we had a group of friends and we were all really, really fascinated by alternative education. So the interest in kids and the sort of puzzling out how life could be different was always very prevalent for both of us and for our friends. Like It was, it was hippie days. It was like the time, uh, it was early 70s, but out of the 60s, like questioning and all of those ideas and feminism. and So that was all very, very alive. So life was much more vibrant in that when I was at drama school you know I was at so I sort of fell on my feet just thought oh drama looks interesting I'll tick that and I majored in drama it's like oh and I can remember people some of the lecturers being really fascinated it was like it was like I had no real sense of myself it was I've learned about myself by what people have mirrored to me and what I've learned you know, in drama, that I had some facility. I, I was really interested in that, and I really enjoyed it. You know, it was like, wow, wow, life. You know, and met some really interesting, creative people. Total serendipity. Depends what you think about that, but you know, maybe not. You know, and again, I danced a lot, but in terms of coming back to the relationship, that relationship was in the middle of all of that. So life was actually a lot more lively, but I was still like 
really like being led along by the nose by life no sense of any ambition even desire interest in kids interest in having children very strong sense of ideas about how children ought to be treated and children's rights and he which was, must have fed back into how you were treated and therefore you wanted totally. to do the yeah yes was was like so i think i've always been on that track of of being very well one of the things that was always important to me from when i could have conscious thoughts about these things was self knowledge so it was like i remember reading i must have been a like a um Greek philosopher or something was like know thyself and I remember seeing it somewhere in here and it's like oh yeah oh yeah it was like ding you can't really if you don't you stuff like how you how can you know anybody if you don't know yourself so it that that happened sometime I think in my teens or even before it was like oh so I was on a quest and do you think that goes back to what I just said to you you strike me as a curious person. Mm. So if you're always seeking to find knowledge and to gain yeah. insight into things, because of how, going back to your childhood, that made your desire to find this way of being different to what you'd experienced yeah, was yeah. even more, was even stronger. Well, it was even a, yes, it was even the sort of having the knowledge that it could be different was was really important. It was life-saving because, uh, because also... None of this is black and white, you know. At the same time, there lived in me an assumption that it was only my family that was like that, that the rest of the world was a benign and caring place. I was pretty wrong about that in many ways, <laughs> but that that was a saving thought. And how long before you worked that out that that wasn't the case? Oh, I've had plenty of opportunity to and and to then to realise that that was an assumption I'd made. Because I was so dashed by things that happened, by how naive I was about other people, how willing to trust when trust wasn't something that was appropriate to give, how lacking in boundaries I was, you know, like how open to the world. Like it was like shut down here, but just like, oh, ridiculous. But then you were also looking for affirmation from people because Absolutely. you didn't have it yourself. Yeah. Totally. And to go back, I, we're, yeah. I know I'm wandering all over the place here. It's, but it was in that sort of um, framework that I got pregnant with Zoe when the, she was born in 73. And that was deliberate. We wanted to have a child. It was very much, and she was always Zoe. Because that was, that was A.S. Neal's daughter's name, and it means life. It's Greek, Zoe. And so we were very much already kind of searching and acknowledging the sort of the the the, the unhealth in being shut down emotionally because A.S. Neil was very much about recognising emotions and being honest emotionally and recognising children's experiences. So that's been a big part of my life as well and that's to do with dance and that's all the arts and drama and self-expression, knowing yourself, all of those things tying in so you were clever in that you picked you worked as you said before you curious therefore you'd worked out what would help you ex be able to express how you felt <clears throat> and to be able to give that to other people and to make that connections with other humans because you didn't have that when you were crying yeah which is not a lot of people as you said it could have gone a, could a have gone really, really bad badly. way i so. don't think i'd be here honestly i don't think i'd be here if i hadn't have had it as much therapeutic help as I've had. I've had help from people that have been, you know, not not always ended up in a good way, but just have been brilliant at the time. And I've had some amazing therapists, just, you know, amazing, amazing for me and just really skilled people. And long being people that were willing to stick with me for as long as it took. Oh, and I've had amazing collegiate relationships professional relationships, partnerships, right throughout my adult life up until till I've stopped last year. Just incredible people and just learnt so much. It's, it's really, it, it, 
I've been extraordinarily lucky and, and fortunate and you know a lot of my work that I got was I was handed work for years and years I, I was one of the few people I knew who, who actually had work as a dance therapist who, who I, I could almost support myself you know and I was separated in, I was about 42 with Ruby was nine Zoe was 18 Zoe was overseas and it was like oh my god <laughs> my mother died at the same time and my whole work life collapsed so I was like <laughs> okay uh, well, let's start again <laughs> And I stopped. I couldn't dance then, so I stopped. I didn't think I'd ever dance again. That was wrong. But why did you stop dancing? I couldn't dance. I was so depressed. I was so shocked, and I was so devastated after the breakup of our marriage that I could barely breathe. I was in so much pain. Like I was in. I think I was in so much pain emotionally uh, for because it went much further than the marriage. People could hardly bear to be near me. I was, and I was looking after Ruby, who was devastated, and her sister was overseas. My brother was overseas. My mother died. It was suddenly it was me, Ruby, and my father. And my father and I weren't close, so it was like. But he took us under his wings. Wing. We were both bereaved at the same time. So he, he kind of turned to face us. And that was wonderful. And I then started to develop a relationship with him, which only ended, well, hasn't ended, but only ended in July when he died at 95. Oh, gosh, we've moved a long way from your question, which was about pregnancy. But, yeah, so we deliberately had Zoe. And I was depressed. And I realised then that my... Well, I didn't realise then. I realised after I found out about all of that neurological research about babies, I realised that my mother had been depressed. So my sensitivity to, plus my knowledge of, was from the inside. So it was like, I, I can work with this, but I have to be really careful not to put my experiences there. So I had to be sort of professionally very, very, have a lot of integrity and a very lot of awareness. But I was working with colleagues who were sort of, I made them aware of my history, so we were we were alive to that. Plus, I was already very experienced, so it really wasn't that much of an issue. And if it ever became an issue, I would go and get help. You know, if it if it triggered me. But yeah, we had Zoe. We were twenty one. No, I must have, no. I just turned twenty three. She was still very young. Three days after my twenty third birthday. And when she turned 23, she was overseas. She was overseas for most of her 20s. And I remember talking to her for her birthday and she said, Mum, how did you do it? Like, you know, how did you... 23? I, and she's, you know, she, her saying, I want to have kids, but, oh, I'm so young. I wouldn't have a clue. Like, how could you... And I said, well, <laughs> yeah... I was pretty. We were young, all right, you know. And it was a t it was an incredible shock. And she's ended up being a midwife, my Zoe. And so I mean, the themes run through the family. Yeah, it's amazing. And she she and I have ended up talking about her birth at various times. And when she became a, a midwife, I think I've got this right. The timing, we were talking about her birth. From I think it was like from from the point of her professional point of view and I was telling her things about what happened and it was, you know, again I was wet behind the ears, totally naive, no one told me it was painful, they said it was like bad period pain, it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a young woman and anyway I'm reduced to being a screaming heap of a, of a three-year-old or a five-year-old with, with no help and my body, like, what's this? Am I going to die? And it was very long and it was badly managed. But anyway, at one point I had an epidural. I think it was in the days they only just came, 73, only just started. 
the nurse, one of the midwives, was meant to put a catheter in, and she didn't. And they were called to another birth, which was public hospitals, that was through the curtain, woman having twins. And meanwhile, they all left, and Zoe, I felt her, they all went, So I, and, and the epidural was working, and I felt her move right down into my pelvis, and in, I, I felt her crown. But I've got a full bladder, which is not good. So I could feel, and I put my hand down, I could feel her head bulging between my legs, and I thought, ooh, okay. And so the nurses, the midwives came back in and were just kind of looking at me, and I said, I think you might like to have a look between my legs. <laughs> and they all went, oh! So, and then they were back, and she noticed my bladder bulging and she had to get a catheter in then i don't know how she did it so zoe's take on that was mum they damaged your bladder because i've had i've since had bladder problems and that's just gone with me it's just been part of me and we've all just accepted it but when i was talking to her and zoe had a professional take on it she said mum that damaged your bladder it's really bad practice i was like wow isn't that amazing my my adult daughter is is commenting on her birth and how I was treated by the midwives. How amazing, you know. So you know, I as a as a young mother, I was I adored her, but I it was I, I was also still struggling with being very numb emotionally and depression and a depression that I'd not recognised as that. And many, many feelings I didn't have words for. It's one of the best things therapy ever did for me, was help me actually name things, you know, and have, be able to sort of... And why did you pick therapy? I fell into my lap. I mean, I mean I'm a, that kind of orientated person, I suppose. I'm interested in, in, in the inner workings of things. And it was an opportunity to talk, you know. <laughs> Although at that stage it was somatic therapy, it was Reiki therapy, so it was all about the body. But one thing I haven't said to you is that as a child, I, I started to dance. Like I was taken to well, um, character dancing, so it was this sort of a mixture of, I suppose, child a, a child's modern dance, you know, and ballet, and, and then I, I was totally passionate about ballet when I was a bit older but we, we did concerts and stuff like that and my experience when I think it was more when I started ballet when I danced it was like wow wow nobody's ever told me about this it was just the experience of me in my body in the moment fully alive and it was like a secret. It's like, wow. It was, I learned that I could actually, from feeling pretty shut down and grey, there, there was this experience, there was this expression, there was this movement that, where I tingled and I felt really alive, like I was touched by God. It was like f full of life and life energy. It was just, I couldn't have told you that at the time, but it was just this expansion of vitality and I think it, it it kind of saved me because it was like having something I could always knew was mine no one could take that from me unless they tied me down <laughs> but no one could interfere with that really it was an internal and but I stopped ballet when I was about 13 because it got really competitive and that ruined it for me and ballet wasn't something anyway because it was regimented that you could always have that experience with. Um, I found that again much later when I did expressive dance and creative dance and developed a, a, a way of working with improvisation that helped other people who, who were saying they wanted to dance and just helped them find a way of, the, of doing that, finding the, the inner dancer, if you want to put it that way. Which I just believe, and, and, and the people I mixed with who I was training with had that kind of belief too, was, was there in everyone. But that goes back to this whole idea of in trauma, 
there's always a lesson to learn yeah, yeah. that will guide you and that's obviously what happened for you yes and then you once you've experienced that yourself you want to share that with everybody mm. else i can relate to that in a different way but yeah yeah i think yeah, that's yeah. very profound that if you really feel that which is i'm getting that completely from what you're saying yeah that you you were as you said i was thinking the word before you said it like you were alive i could feel that as you were talking mm. no one can see you but i can see you and you are you know, you're euphoric, you're just... It was euphoric. And so I, that, that's where I totally get that. And so if, you yeah. fe- if, if you're able to feel that way... Yeah. I'm guessing, I can only speak for myself and you in this case, but most people would want to... You'd want to share that with and allow other people to experience yes. that because that's uh, well, profound. Well, I, actually, I think what it was that, that I was experiencing was love. It was like that universal sense of love. It's like... Like it felt like both it was poured into me and it was pouring out of me. It was just like I lost my boundaries. It was like, but I wasn't out of control. It was a, it was just a very, very, was very profound. And it was something that has kept happening through my life, through dance, that, that that's what I would experience. So yes, you're right. That's what I would want to share. <laughs> I didn't, I don't think I ever really thought that, it was other people who helped me either by recognising something or opportunities would come and I'd think, oh yeah, okay, I'll do that. Or it was a sort of just an innate sort of, oh yeah, I just kind of knew how to do it. And I was a teacher, so, you know, and I did do training, but I was teaching that sort of stuff before I actually did the, the courses. And, and again, doing the courses was very much, because I'm not much, I, I've had to learn to be a seeker in life, a seeker of experiences in a practical way. M- most people can are just are, whereas I've had to teach myself how to be, because I was so shut down as a kid. I was like, I, I was so passive that I've, I've really had to learn how to activate so often throughout my life, someone, like I had a friend then who was like my dance partner, a, a man, and we had a very profound connection through dance and as people, and we did a lot of teaching together. And I think it started actually, he was at the Augustine Centre in Hawthorne, and he and I and another woman, he asked me to come in, I think it was because I was a drum teacher, so again, it was the teaching. And was like we ran a workshop on a Wednesday night I think it was for two hours or something and they were extraordinary this is the mid-70s they were amazing it was drama communication and movement and I was the movement person and Sandra was the she was a playwright she was she did the drama and he was the communications person and we'd run these they were incredible workshops and we'd get like 20 have people booked in and and so I think, and and then he went and and he took, I think that experience and knowing me took him in a, in a dance direction, and which he still does, was very profound. And we developed a lot of work together. So it was that relationship now when I think about it and talking to him, knowing him and having those experiences took it in a therapeutic direction because that's what those groups were about, where they were about self-expression and self-development, self, um, I suppose was the way you put it. And this is the 70s, so it was, you know, let it all hang out. <laughs> I'm guessing it would have been quite unusual. That would have been quite it different. Really, it was People wouldn't amazing. have experienced this before, yeah. Well, the Augustine Centre was famous for that kind of stuff, but self-development stuff. But most of it was talking. And this was like a mixture of, oh, God, of art and... You know, dance and movement, and but was that the time you would have probably felt? Because I, I get that sense from you as you're talking. The first time you really felt alive. Well, those ways, yeah. Probably not the first time, but in that relationship, I think, and in you know, I Zoe was about three, two, three. I mean, I think we met. I met Tony because we were in a play group at the Augustine Centre, and he and I got talking. Zoe was two then. And then it was like, yeah, you're a drama teacher. And it just sort of evolved. And I think I was a real mix. I think I was, again, I keep using the word serendipity. It's like 
these amazing people have popped into my life and I've kind of grabbed it or they've grabbed me, we've grabbed each other and then they've had an influence on, on me because he, he as a person was a very a big seeker, of, you know, like he was just a very a, a person in the world. I suppose that's how I put it. I've often had a lot of trouble being in the world whereas uh, people who are just natural in the world, like my kids are just in the world. Whereas I often have to decide to be still. I've got and to... when you say that to me, does that mean because you're disconnected because you were going back to what you talked about I in your childhood? I still find sometimes it's like I have to put the plug in the wall. It's like... and so what happens, sorry, what happens? So when you say, I, get what you, I sort of get what you're saying, but if you don't put the plug in the wall, what would, what would well, your life I... be like? Oh, I'd be dead if I hadn't learnt. If I hadn't actually been able to understand... The whole thing about that that life's there, God's there, however you want to put it, doesn't ever go away. It's me that goes away. So the plugs, the plug holes there, but sometimes the, I pull the plug out, and if I put the plug back in, and that means I I make a choice to contact someone, meditate. At different times in my life, find another therapist, or it's been about work. Or it's been like at the moment for me, it's about what kind of volunteer work I'll do to stay connected. Uh, your decisions about my partner and us living together and how we want to have our lives. My kids, cause we're about to have another baby. Well, I say we, Ruby's about to have a third baby. But the prompts that I need to still have in place for me to move, to not get too isolated. And too turned in, not and lonely. So therefore, that strikes me as being a form of depression and anxiety. Oh, it is. There. And yeah. you've, so you've always had that. You just had to learn to become aware of that and how to deal with it, which yeah. is why you talk about the it's, metaphor of plugging. Yeah, it's not so much anxiety. Is something that it's not a big feature. I can be anxious, but it's not something I experience consciously very much. It's been more depression. So, but I take antidepressant. I'd love not to, but I mean, I've, I've, it's, it's like the doctor said to me once. So it's like insulin with the diabetic. You know, for whatever reason, the chemicals in my brain. You know, I, I my brain hasn't had much practice <laughs> producing serotonin. So I think that's a really good way of looking at it. So I, it's a, you know, everyone says, oh, it's a small dose, but it is. And I attend, I sometimes cut it down, you know, I talk to the doctor. And in, it, it, and I, I do wonder about blunted emotions sometimes. In general, I think that it's probably wiser to be, to keep, to keep taking that. You know, I feel pretty strong. I mean, I'm, but it, it's a, it's a constant part of my life. It's. It, it's an it's more I got to understand it actually after I started taking medication of how much there's a depressive way of thinking even when you're not maybe having a, a big full-blown episode of depression which I've had a few times but not for a long time there's just a, a gray way of thinking of being actually just like a yeah it's, it's a good it's a, Great way of being. <laughs> that you can't see Susan's poising outside, and it's, it's very—it's raining here in Melbourne right now. <laughs> yeah, and I—I—I I, I just recognize—I couldn't believe how, when I—I I started to take medication, I was like, "Wow, geez, there's a lot of other colours." I mean, and colours really important to me, and I often use colour. I've often deliberately go and look at colourful things and I mean I'm, I love textiles and I think that's been a way you know I'll, I'll I actually touch things or I'll, I've got fabric around and colours around and that it it constantly reminds me about how colourful life is and if I'm not feeling colourful just how and like I've got plants everywhere and growing things everywhere and upstairs I've been knitting and things that are that are keep me in the moment and making things out of nothing and keeping the creative juices flowing and I really enjoy that process. The, di the difference was probably years ago I wouldn't have had the energy 
life was more of uh, go out, do my stuff, work, work, do it really well, come home, like recover. And you know, being, you know, I, I used to think I was, I'm quite a sensitive person, and I probably am, like neurologically sensitive. So, it, it, in order for me to recover, in inverted commas, I need time to myself. Whereas I think in terms of extroversion and introversion, I think you know, it's a bit black and white. But on a spectrum, I'm certainly on the introversion end. Less so, I think, actually. I'm maybe moving towards the middle. I'm much better socially than I used to be. And I'm much more liable to be sociable and seek out sociability, like going away, like I was talking to you about before, and being with people all the time and finding those moments where I could replenish myself because um, I read a book years ago where the, de the definition of introversion and extroversion was how you replenish yourself emotionally and energetically and extroverts tend to do it by being with people that that enlivens them whereas for me in a depleted state that would just deplete me further so what I need to do is go and be by myself or just with one person maybe or in quiet or like I've got the world's biggest collection of slow music <laughs> some really slow music or just nothing and just recover I just replenish I can feel it happening my energy starts to lift and sometimes I have to I need to lie down and put my legs up or something and, or just close the door you know and I'm I'm back in business whereas you know I think years ago I would struggle to be back in business I was very ambivalent about living like ambivalence was it's not an issue at all anymore it, but I think it used to be just a constant companion mm. which would have gone with the depression um, basically that's conflict so it's a just a, such a an energy sink you know it's like a sieve <laughs> it's like being totally porous and just half the time not really wanting to be here not knowing how to be here not knowing you know where I don't think about these things so much now but it used to I used to think a lot about what am I meant to be doing or what are, what's the meaning of life you know what a, what a, which is a fair enough question <laughs> or you know thought to hold but it's I think I'm much more at peace these days I feel actually I feel loved I remember someone saying to me once you can't it was in a therapeutic situation you can't feel other people loving you can you I was like, no, no, you're right, I can't feel it. I mean, I feel love in, for people, but I couldn't feel, which is something about plugging in the wall. You know, it's like God's love, universal love, love is a state of being. But I think, I think you learn about that, back to being a kid, you learn about that from how you held, how you looked at, how generously you are fed, how how clearly the people around you tell you that they want to meet your needs and that they're interested in what you think and how you're feeling and as a tiny, tiny person, how they seek to understand what it is you're trying to, to communicate through your cries and your body. I think why this is so valuable but also why I'm happy to do this is because I think people are more similar than they are different. <clears throat> yes. Well, it's and an in our very, very individualistic, idiosyncratic kind of culture, differences are so emphasised. Mm. And sometimes they're emphasised in a way where difference is bad, you know, like in, with immigration or racism. It's really destructive. And it's, it's not, it isn't true. It's like where, when you, I think like I was saying to you about travelling, it's what travel does too. You realise that people are people 
and it's the humanity that yes. you connect with. And it's so important. So important. And unless you have deep conversations, you don't get to see those similarities yes. and those those beautiful synchronicities or that those those light bulb moments where you say, Oh yeah, I know what you mean. I've been through that and you might have totally disparate lives, but there's a point of contact. And it means that you can't you can't go back to your former prejudices. It's like a, there's a, a shift's taken place and you, you know, you're in a different place. Yes, completely. Yeah. And I think it's, people, unless you have an experience like the, what you're talking about, like this moment, or you have a conversation with someone who talks about it and you get a sense of, of their experience, you don't think about this. It's not in your, because no. life just goes on, as yeah. I said before, yeah, yeah. much earlier on. We're all busy. Everyone's whatever phase you are in your life. You typically got stuff, yeah. So that you you're not consciously aware of the need to do what you yeah. you know have to. And it isn't for everybody, but for most people, I'd say almost everybody, it is like breathing because mm. if you don't do it, then you're gonna there's a, you're gonna suffer. I believe as yeah. a consequence. Yeah. Oh yes, and there's a lot of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a lot of masking of suffering. Yeah. Okay. Then that's a good place to, yeah. to stop. So thank you for your time. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morereal1 at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support.